So our family just got back from a spring break trip down to Florida, down to 30A. Uh, some friends of ours invited us to uh, come down to Watercolor, and uh, because we have a 20-month-old, we decided to fly uh, down to Panama City instead of making the, uh, the eight-hour drive. But we had good weather, we had a, a fun week, but after we decided to go on the trip about a month ago, I got online and I got on Expedia and I booked a rental car. And I was very proud of myself because I got a rental car and it was for five days and it was all taxes and fees included for $92. Mid-size SUV, not bad, right? Well, we fly to Panama City. Megan takes the kids to the carousel. I head over to the Hertz counter to uh, get the rental car. And the lady says, uh, can you give me your name? And I gave her my name and she types in, says, I don't see your reservation here. Can you give me a confirmation number? Gave her my confirmation number, uh, types it in, didn't see anything. And I said, look, and I handed her my phone. I said, I booked this rental car about a month ago and I got a really good deal, which is exciting. And she took my phone and she looked at it and she kind of looked up at me and she laughed and she said, sweetheart, you booked this rental car in Panama City, Panama. No wonder you got such a good deal. That's how our vacation started. And 30 minutes later, we were off in a brown Nissan Altima that smelled like cigarettes headed to the beach. But I tell you that story to begin a sermon this morning on humility. Humility. Today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, which is the most important week of the year for us as Christians. And we will have special services, like I said, Thursday evening, Friday at noon, and then, of course, we'll celebrate the resurrection next Sunday. But um, this week is important. This is the holiest week of the year for us as Christians. Today, we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Matthew tells us that Jesus had carefully planned this out. He sent two of his disciples ahead into a village where they would find a donkey and a colt tied up. He said, bring them to me. And if anybody asks you what you were doing, just tell them that the Lord needs them. And this was to fulfill what was once spoken by the prophet Zechariah, the words that Mary Claire read, Lo, your king comes to you humble and mounted on a donkey. So think about this scene. It's Passover time in Jerusalem. There are roughly, give or take, two and a half million people crowded into the holy city. The law at the time said that every adult Jewish male within 20 miles of Jerusalem had to come to observe Passover the people were, great, were waiting with great anticipation for the coming of the king, a king from the lineage of David, a man named Jesus from Nazareth. They had heard about Jesus and all that he had done. They had heard of his teachings, his healings, his miracles. He had caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, the dead to live again. And he had challenged the authorities and he had reached out to the marginalized. He was to be the new king and fulfill the prophecy and deliver the people from Roman rule and oppression. So imagine it. Here he comes. Cloaks are thrown on the ground. Palm branches are being waved in the air like our children did this morning. Excitement abounded. Expectations were high. The people shouted over and over, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us now. 
And Jesus enters Jerusalem not with a mighty military parade, not with soldiers and horses or swords, but humble. Humble and riding on a donkey, fulfilling the words of the prophet. Every year when we get to Holy Week, I find myself wrestling with a question that I think is a very interesting question. In fact, I actually explored it a little bit in the book that I put out a couple years ago uh, because I think it's an important question. The question is this, was Jesus a political person? Did he have a political agenda? There's lots of debate over this. Uh, it, It doesn't seems like people have different answers when it comes to this question. Theologian Stanley Harawas wrote a fascinating commentary on Matthew's gospel, and he says this, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem is an unmistakable political act. He has come to acknowledge, to be acknowledged as king. He's the son of David, the one long expected to free Jerusalem from foreign domination, yet this king triumphs not through violent revolt, but by being for Israel the one who is able to show show it that its worship of God is its freedom. He is Israel's long-expected priestly king, whom the prophet said would come. His entry into Jerusalem is therefore rightly celebrated by those who are not in power, the peasant class, the lower class people. So can you imagine the irony of that first Palm Sunday? What the people were expecting versus what they got. They were expecting a warrior. They were expecting a mighty soldier to liberate them from Roman oppression, occupation, and taxation. They were expecting a grand entry into Jerusalem. But here comes Jesus, humble, and riding on a donkey. Once he enters Jerusalem, what does he do? Matthew tells us that he goes straight to the temple. What happens at the temple? He gets angry at the money changers, taking advantage of the people. He causes a scene. He turns over the the tables and he quotes Jewish scripture by saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus is angry. He's fed up. Harawas says going to the temple is perhaps even more significant than his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The temple defined Israel. The worship of God and political obedience are inseparable in that day. The abuses surrounding the temple and Israel's political subjugation are but aspects of the same political reality. You see, Rome had a system for how to occupy the land. They did it by paying the Jewish high priests, the religious leaders to keep the people in order primarily through religion and coercion. And the chief priests had basically sold out because it was in their best financial interest. N.T. Wright puts it this way, Jerusalem had lost its way so drastically. Somehow the leaders of the Jewish people had gotten things so wrong in their collusion with Rome and in their corruption, their oppression and greed. Somehow the Jewish people, Jesus' own people, had gotten things so wrong in their determination to bring God's victory to the world through military violence and armed rebellion that the only word the last of the prophets can now speak is a word of judgment found in Matthew 24. Not one stone will be left standing upon another. All of them will be thrown down. 
Of course, Jesus was no fool. He knew that entering Jerusalem in a mighty procession and and causing a scene at the temple during Passover, he knew that would be problematic. It would not lead to a, a happy ending. In fact, he had predicted it three times. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised. But the disciples never really got it. They said, Jesus, what are you talking about? Quit talking like that. Now, later in the week, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing See, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are two words that I find myself thinking about when I reflect upon this Palm Sunday text. The first word is courage. And the second word is humility. Or as I've done this morning by putting them together Courageous humility. Jesus showed courage when he entered Jerusalem. Courage has been defined as strength in the face of pain or grief. He did not like what he saw when he entered the temple, and he showed incredible courage in confronting the authorities, turning over the tables, driving out the money changers, the same courage that he had shown throughout his entire life and ministry. But Jesus knew how it would end. He knew that you can't challenge the system, you can't challenge the powers that be without there being serious consequences. N.T. Wright says, he cannot establish the new creation without allowing the poison in the old to have its full effect. He cannot launch God's kingdom of justice and truth and peace unless injustice and lies and violence do their worst And like a hurricane, blow themselves out, exhausting their force onto this one spot. He cannot begin the work of healing the world unless he provides the antidote to the infection that would otherwise destroy the project from within. You see, Jesus exposed our world of violence and intimidation for what it is. Wright says that this is where it all comes together. We see how the early work of Jesus' career, his healings, the celebrations, the forgiveness, the changed hearts, all look forward to this moment. This is what it looks like when Israel's God becomes king. Jesus showed courage. But what about us? What about us as his followers? Do we show courage? Many of us, when we are faced with difficult or uncomfortable situations in life, we are quick to turn around or go the other way. Many of us are good at avoiding conflict and confrontation, and we do everything in our power to keep it from happening. We run, we hide, we lie, we go back on our word, we get two-faced. We say one thing to this group of people and another thing to this group of people. We take the path of least resistance We're often unwilling to face some of our most difficult situations in life because it can be awkward. But courage is important in a world that is dominated by fear. Courage is essential if we want to conquer our fears. The second word that I think about is humility. Jesus was a humble person. But that doesn't mean that he was a weak person. 
Humility means quiet strength. And unfortunately, we now live in an age where humility is becoming less and less common. Arrogance is everywhere. Insecurity is everywhere. Social media has taken envy and competition to new heights. We only put our best selves out there. We want to show the world how great our life is. But life's not perfect. We all have problems. Remembering this keeps us humble. While I was on vacation, I read a great book by Richard E. Simmons, not the aerobics guy, another Richard Simmons, called The Power of a Humble Life. And according to Simmons, life's greatest paradox is that strength is found in humility. Arrogance is simply a way to cover up our lack of self-confidence. Simmons says this about social media. He says, 15 years ago, social media was non-existent. And yet it now dominates a major part of our lives, particularly young people. The great concern is that we are creating a culture of self-admiring narcissists who think that the world revolves around them. Social media has become an outlet to self-promote and its popularity signals that we are becoming a society focused on the glorification of self. Or as David Brooks, the uh, New York Times columnist calls it, it's the culture of the big me. And this is the opposite of what Jesus was about. He was about others. He was about serving others. He was about healing others, leading others, helping others. But our culture is becoming self-absorbed and technology is playing a big role in getting us there very, very quickly. So what do we take away on Palm Sunday? What are the takeaways from this text in Matthew's gospel? First, I would say the clear fact that Jesus' kingdom was and still is very different from the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world are based on power and money, intimidation and fear, force and violence, materialism and greed. And Jesus' kingdom is based on love and forgiveness, grace and reconciliation, peace, and hospitality, humility, authenticity, and service to others. Throughout his life and ministry, he showed us that he came not to destroy, but to love, not to condemn, but to help, not to judge, but to forgive. And yet we still have a hard time grasping how to live in this kingdom because it is so different from the kingdoms that we know. Jesus was passionately committed to speaking out against injustice and oppression, and he spoke up for those who didn't have a voice. He did it boldly. The second takeaway on Palm Sunday is that we are reminded that courage is a gift that comes from God. And all of us are called to face Jerusalem on some level. But sometimes when we show courage, there are consequences. There were for Jesus. What are the Jerusalems that we face in the world today? Maybe it's poverty. Maybe it's homelessness and hunger. Maybe it's racism, bigotry, homophobia. Maybe it's even closer to home. Maybe it's cancer or illness. Maybe it's fear itself. Maybe it's coming to terms with something that we did in our past that we can't seem to get over. Maybe it's being willing to mend a relationship or a marriage or a friendship that's been broken for a really long time. And for whatever reason, we just haven't been able to get it right. 
Dealing with any and all of these things takes courage. And courage is a gift that comes from God. Jesus showed incredible courage when he entered Jerusalem. And he calls us to show the same courage when we have to deal with injustices and difficult situations in our own lives and in our own communities. Courage, I think, comes through prayer. Courage comes from being together in a community and supporting each other. And courage also comes through making peace with death itself. Because to be free to live in this life, we have to be free to die. And lastly, if we want to be like Jesus, then we need to be humble. We need to not be so wrapped up in ourselves. Somebody once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Think of all the people in Jerusalem waiting for the powerful new king, the liberator, the warrior, the hero to overthrow Roman rule, to reestablish Israel's monarchy. And all of a sudden, here comes this humble guy riding on a donkey. What a sight. What a surprise. What a contrast to what they expected. This is how God becomes king. Author Henry Bosch once made this observation, said Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle taught for just over 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact that was left by the combined 130 years of teachings by these three giants in the academic world. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter from Nazareth. We know how Holy Week begins, and we also know how it ends. Palm Sunday and Good Friday are great reminders of how life can take a turn very quickly, and people can surprise us and abandon us, but God doesn't. We have to understand that the way of Christ is the way of the cross. And we cannot get from Palm Sunday to Easter without first going through the pain and suffering of Good Friday. It's very tempting. It's what a lot of Christians do, but we can't do it. It's why we'll have services here on Thursday and Friday of this week. There are too many Christians today who want to leave this part out. They want to focus on being happy and joyful and free of pain and fear. But that is what is so unique about the Christian faith. Jesus was crucified. He understands our pain because he lived it. He understands what it means to be betrayed. He understands what it means to come up against a force that can put you to death. He knows that life is not always easy or happy. We have to deal with illness and shortcomings and hardships and disappointments and loss and devastation and struggle. And ultimately, we have to face death itself. But because of Christ, we also know that pain and death do not have the final say. Death doesn't win. Love wins. Hope wins. Resurrection wins. And yes, we believe because of the words of Christ that life goes on beyond the grave. Amen.